There we go. Good evening. All right. Uh, let's go to work. So, um, Revelation 4 and 5 is, I would argue, are the most important chapters in the entire book of Revelation. Um, it would, people would do well if instead of trying to figure out ten-headed dragons and uh, giant horse-sized locusts with crowns on their heads, uh, if they focused on the main thrust of the book of Revelation, which is uh, really the vision of God that we see in the fourth and fifth chapter. Uh, the view that we have starts with John after he has uh, written these diverse messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, the Lord Jesus, who is the voice that, well, as of the sound of the trumpet, calls him up into a vision. And uh, there he sees the majesty of God on display. And we see it in a few ways. In verses 1 through 7, we see the glory and majesty of God. We see the, the vision of God is like a carnelian, and, which is a gemstone, and all of these gemstones. And then there's thunders and lightnings and voices and smoke and all these wonderful things. And this is to communicate the glory of God. And secondly, we see the awesome sovereignty and dominion of God as uh, John in the Spirit describes the throne of God. Uh, the throne of God is made up of four uh, living creatures which all represent the chief um, creatures that rule over the diverse realms of the earth. So you have the lion, which is the king of all the wild animals, and you have the ox, which is the king of all the domesticated animals, and you have the man, which is the king of all intelligent life, and then you have the eagle, which is the king of all of the avian creatures. And so we see that God's uh, sovereignty and dominion is over all of creation. Um, it is a lively picture that John is trying to paint for us of that psalm which says the Lord is in his heaven and he does whatsoever he pleases in heaven and on earth and the sea and in all deeps. There's nothing that is free of his power. And in case you're wondering where the, uh, the, the marine life is, the Bible says that his throne is set up over a, a crystal sea which represents the deep and all of the chaos of the deep, which though to us, being very close to the sea, seemed like a roaring wave, um, it's like marble, like uh, glass before the living God, because there's really nothing that perturbs him or disturbs him. And so in light of this great majesty that the Holy Spirit would have us to see in um, the fourth chapter of Revelation, the main thrust of the fourth chapter is the response which all of these heavenly creatures have to the awesome glory of God that's on display. Uh, more than John wants us to see that God's body is like a carnelian, which as uh, Drew talked about several weeks ago, it's not trying to describe the physical body of God. It's like as of the appearance of a carnelian. It's, not, it's trying to define this awesome, resplendent, rich glory of it. But that's not the main point of Revelation 4. And the thunders are not the main point, and the elders are not the main point. It's the worship which they give in light of God that is the main point. And the center of Revelation 4 is in verse 8, where the living creatures and the elders cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, I find interesting in this passage that the main thing is not the almightiness of God. 
the almightiness of God here, I would argue, encompasses what we would call the extrinsic attributes of God. And I can't go into the detail of why I believe that, because we don't have time. But um, the extrinsic attributes of God are those attributes whereby God communicates himself to his creatures. So his omnipotence is how we know who God is. Uh, Romans 1 talks about how we know him by his divine power and his Godhead. Uh, We know him by his omniscience. We know him by his uh, loving kindness. We know him by his um, righteousness and by his ubiquity, which is his omnipresence. And so the almightiness of the Lord God Almighty has bound up within it the idea of his extrinsic attributes, which we've talked about this summer. And also we have that he's the God who was and is and is to come, which are the intrinsic attributes of his nature, which would capture in the aseity of God, and obviously, as we see in the, in the text, it's the, um, the eternity of God, but it's a riff on the uh, Exodus 5, which is the I am that I am, or the passages in Isaiah where God says, even before the day was, I am he, which is speaking of the beingness of God the aseity of God, the self-existence of God, and with that, the simplicity of God and everything that logically flows from that. But as glorious as these attributes are, and as much as they recognize that these attributes are truly God's, it's not the main point of the anthem. The worship of his attributes are a footnote to the holiness of God. When they think of the almightiness of God, they're like, yeah, great, God is almighty, but did you know he's holy? When they think of the great and vast knowledge of God, yes, that's wonderful, and we praise him for his knowledge, but did you know that he's holy? And so we see that the the appropriate response in the direct, immediate presence of God that all of these angelic beings are experiencing is not primarily a recognition of those external or internal attributes of God, but it is rather a recognition of the holiness of God, which leads us to our main doctrine for this evening, which is that the sum and crown of true divine worship is a supreme regard to the holiness of God. That the sum and crown of true divine worship is a supreme recognition. That means we recognize above everything else God's holiness. And since that is a doctrine that I arrived at by implication, let me um, explicate from some passages for you, because I think that if you come... If you come at something sideways, you should probably, you know, bring something that supports that. So, uh, back in the book of um, Leviticus, right before God gives the revelation about the Day of Atonement, uh, the sons of Aaron come before the altar of God, and the Bible says that they offered up strange fire before the Lord. And the fire came up off the altar, and the Bible says it destroyed Nadab and Abihu. And then God was so disgusted with these men, he said, get their bodies out of the tabernacle. And then before Aaron could open his mouth, God speaks through Moses and he says, Did you not know that this is what the Lord meant when I said that of all who draw near to me, I will be regarded as holy. And in the midst of the assembly, I will be glorified. In another place in the book of Numbers, uh, God tells Moses, of the children of Israel being the children of Israel, and they're complaining. And they're wanting water. And so God says, go to this rock and speak to the rock 
and uh, then get water and give the children of Israel water. Well, Moses is Moses, and he's very angry. And so he hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And immediately after the children of Israel are satisfied with water, God speaks to Moses, and he says, Because you did not regard me as holy, you will not enter into the land that I'm bringing the children of Israel into. In another place, in, in the book of James, uh, not James, First Peter, third chapter, it's a passage that everybody knows. It's the great apologetic past, passage, right? It's, um, you know, always being ready to give a defense for the uh, hope that you have within you, but that's prefaced in the 15th verse by a quotation from Isaiah 8 that says, Sanctify in your heart Christ as God, so that the root of our apologetics and the root of our evangelism is sanctifying the Lord Jesus. And I think the most obvious uh, of all of the explicit texts that speak of the prominence of the holiness of God in worship is that first petition of the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus tells us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is, that before we get to anything else that we desire, the core of our prayer life, and thus our Christian life flowing from our prayer life, ought to be that we want God's God's life. We want God and His name to be considered as holy. So by the Lord's assistance, I want to talk about three things. One, I want to ask the question, what is holiness? Secondly, I want to ask the question, wherein does a supreme regard to God's holiness consist? And thirdly, I want to make some uses uh, of the doctrine, if time permits. So, first of all, what is holiness? It's on the board, but I like writing on the board because it makes me feel scholarly, so I'm going to write on the board. Um, I want to talk about holiness by way of apophysis, which is a way of negation, by saying what holiness is, by saying what it's not. And so in the Bible, there are two ways to define holiness. I can't find them. That's all right. Um, There are two ways to define holiness. And the first is that holiness is not common. And secondly, it's that holiness is the opposite of profane. So holiness is the opposite of common. I want to first talk about how holiness is described in general in the Bible, and then I want to talk about how those concepts are applied to God and the implications of that. So holiness not being common, I think, is very keenly seen in what is called the Holy of Holies, where it is a place that is so set apart from the common milieu of the Jewish people that not anybody, well, not anybody can just go into the tabernacle, right? And then not just anybody can go into the inner place. But not anybody, only one person at one time of the year could enter into the Holy of Holies because it's a place so consecrated, a place so set apart for the worship of God, so other than any other place that is on the earth, that the Bible says that if a person even peeks behind the curtain to look into what, the, what it is, that they'll die. It is a separate, completely other uh, part of the Jewish community. 
And we, we have phrases in the Old Testament that speak of sanctifying the firstborn that comes out of the matrix, which is to set apart every firstborn animal and set apart every firstborn uh, young man and set apart uh, even unclean animals. You had to break their neck and that sets them apart from everything so that the rest of the family and the rest of the um, you know, bushel of apples and the rest of the herd will be holy. You set it apart from everything else. At the core, the word holiness in the Old Testament and in the New Testament means otherness. It is that God is absolutely other. Or uh, a more appropriate word, I think, is that He is singular in His essence. He's singular. That means that, if I could define it, the holiness of God is that oneness of God whereby He is without rival, He is without equal, He is without consort, and He is without offspring. Now, I only have time to really talk about two of those things that I think is really important. God is one, He's without a consort. Now, what does that mean? A consort is like your wife. And in the book of Genesis, uh, God creates Adam, and He sees that Adam's alone, and He says, uh, you know, it's not good for a man to be alone, right? And so the Bible says that he makes a hadzer konegdo for Adam. That means he makes a helpmeet suitable. It's a, he makes a foil for Adam because Adam, in and of himself, cannot do what God had purposed for Adam to do, which is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So he makes a helpmate suitable. Everything in creation, as a matter of fact, needs a suitable counterpart. And that's not so with God. There is no, in Hinduism, there's this idea that's called shakti, which is that there is the great divine essence, right? And then you have a feminine essence which helps in the creative order and helps in maintaining creation. And this is not what the Bible teaches. God does not need any help in maintaining any of his works. He doesn't need any help in maintaining any of his being. He is singular in his essence, and there is nothing that he needs, as we talked about when we spoke of aseity, there's nothing that he needs to augment his being. And I think even more important than that thought is that God is without rival, which as opposed to having a foil to God, it's almost as if there's an opposite. This idea that God has no rival uh, really refutes any idea of dualism. That, you know, you have good God over here, that's the Lord, and then you have the devil. And then the devil, you know, you got to really watch out because he's really powerful. And the devil is powerful, but the devil, as Martin Luther said, and I love this phrase, the devil is still God's devil. The devil can do nothing more than what God permits for him to do. God is so supremely over every work that Satan can even imagine. Uh, I am forcing my small group to read a book called The Christian in Complete Armor that's probably... Um, a little thicker than my Bible. And it's a wonderful book, and I would suggest that everyone reads it. But we are in, it's a, it's a treatise over the whole armor of God. And William Gurnall in the book is talking about how uh, all the schemes of the devil, the wiles of the devil, and for like six weeks we're talking about the devil this, the devil this, the devil's shrewd, the devil's powerful, the devil has agents, the devil is this. And my small group was like, oh, Lord. I don't know if I can go through this, but there was, after all of that, I love what William Gurnall did. He spoke of, yes, there's all of these things that are true of the devil, but the devil is still God's slave. And I love this phrase that he said. So he said, go ahead and plow with God's heifer. 
because there's nothing that the devil can do that is not ultimately for the good of those that God loves and that love the Lord. And so, go on and plow with God's heifer. You should take that away if there's anything else that I say tonight. Plow with God's heifer. (laughs) So, (laughs) secondly, holiness is the opposite of profanity. And this is seen in, in the book of Ezekiel, which is quoting the book of Leviticus, where God says that the priests can't drink strong drink because they have to make a difference between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the profane. Or in another place, the term profane is used speaking of the priests, and it says, you shall not profane your daughters by causing them to go about as strumpets. Uh, Or in another place, it speaks of a declining from holiness when it says, you shall keep the Sabbath and you shall not defile it. And the one who defiles the Sabbath must be put to death. And so you have this idea of defilement and profanity. And so when we speak of holiness as being not profane, it is the idea of the excellency of God's nature. Jonathan Edwards says it as like this. He says that holiness is the moral perfection of God's natural attributes. So God, in his nature, he is all-powerful. But his power is not just all-powerful, it's a holy omnipotence. So it's not a tyranny that he wreaks over his uh, creation, it is a holy omnipotence. His immutability is not an obdurate stubbornness that's in, in me. It is a holy immutability. It's a consistency with his character and nature. His righteousness is not a perverted justice. It is a holy justice. His loving kindness isn't a doting sycophancy. It is a holy loving kindness. Does that make sense? And we have a word uh, for this idea of All of the components, and I hate using components when we're talking about God, but bear with me. All of the components of a thing, when they are in perfect symmetry, in perfect proportion to one another, we have a term for that, that I think all of us can recognize. And Jonathan Edwards speaks in the sixth chapter of his treatise on um, the affections, godly affections. He describes holiness as the beauty of the divine nature. That's why the Bible speaks many times in the Psalms. It will say, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth stand in awe of Him. In another place it says, you know, the Lord sits above the water flood and everything worship Him in the beauty of holiness. Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple, um, he doesn't even use the word holiness. He just says, let us worship the Lord, the beauty of the Lord. There is a true beauty, a resonance of all of the attributes of God. And that is what holiness is. If if righteousness were God's throne, and the loving kindness of God were His crown, and the power of God was His scepter, holiness would be the hardness of His scepter, and the gleam of the diamonds in His crown. It would be the richness of the foundation of his throne. That's how central to God holiness is. So the question that I have 
then based upon what we see of what holiness is, is how then do we have a regard, a supreme regard, to the holiness of God? Because the question that, and I didn't just come up with this, I'm not that smart, I, I stole this from Jonathan Edwards, because he speaks wonderfully on, on the doctrine of holiness in religious affections. He asked the question, what is the difference at this moment between a person in this room who has faith in Jesus and the damned in hell? Because at this moment, those who are under the wrath of God are more sensible of the power of God, of the knowledge of God, of the justice of God, They're even more sensible of the loving kindness of God as they see God pouring out His loving kindness on those who have repented and believed the gospel. They are more sensible of every attribute of God than you and I will ever be as we breathe air in this life. So what's the difference? Because they are more sensible, but they are not having any benefit from it. They are still eternally miserable though they know the glory of God. On the day of judgment, what will be the difference between, as 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, this is in your Bible. Uh, In Thessalonians, in your Bible, the difference between those who are shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might when the Lord Jesus comes with flaming fire and holy angels And in the same breath, Paul says, to be marveled at by his saints. So what's the difference between shut out from the presence of the Lord and the saints marveling at the glory of the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment? And there are two things that I think, I thought about three as I was walking over here, and I was like, well, I said two, so we're just going to go with two. Um, Because another question that I had was the difference between, in Christ's earthly ministry, What's the difference between his disciples who Jesus can say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and the Pharisees can look at the self-same Jesus in whom all the deity is pleased to dwell. And they reject it. What's the difference? The first is that there has to be a conviction of the reality of the holiness of God. And I kind of spoke on this in the previous section, but our minds have to be convinced of God's holiness. Not, not merely a, an assent to the doctrine of God's holiness, but a conviction to the doctrine of God's holiness. A conviction that brings about a conformity of life that causes us to live for God, But not only is a conviction necessary, because there are people who we would consider as hypocrites who might see the glory of God, and they might be convinced of the glory of God, but they're missing a very important component, and that component is a complacency with the holiness of God. Let me describe what complacency is. Complacency is a love for something. There are different kinds of loves. Learn this from R.C. Sproul. There's the love of benevolence. Benevolence uh, comes from bene voluntas, which means goodwill. So it is having a general position of goodwill toward a person. 
Uh, and that, has, that doesn't have really regard to what is in the object of the thing loved. It has everything to do with the subject who is loving. He's, he has just has a resolve in himself to have a good will towards something. God's general t- position to all of his works is a love of benevolence. There's also a love of beneficence. Uh, there we go. Beneficence, if you can see the word benefit, is in uh, beneficence. And that is a love that induces the person that loves the object to give good things to the object of the love. There's also an inverse of the love of beneficence, which is that you love a person because of what that person can do for you. And many people stop with God at a love of beneficence. We love God because He gives us health. And we love God because He gave you a family. And we love God because we don't have to go to hell. But I believe that what has to happen in the soul of a person is that you must have a love of complacency. Which is also up there somewhere. And complacency has to do with a love that is brought forth from the loveliness of the object itself. That it's not a love that primarily stems in what that thing can do for you, but it's a love that is demanded by the loveliness of the object. I remember one uh, Christmas, it was Christmas week, and we were headed down to Louisiana, and my mom had come down from Nebraska, I remember it because it was the Christmas that my aunt died, and uh, it was the day before we were going to go visit her, and she died on our way to go visit. And the night before, it's a very long story, my sister had a friend who was out of town, and my, sis- my mom doesn't like dogs, and my sister has a dog, and so she didn't want to stay with my sister, and so my sister's friend said that we could stay at her apartment while she was gone. And my mom didn't want to sleep in my sister's friend's bed, and so she slept on the couch, and I slept on the floor. And my mom goes to sleep watching television, usually the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which I would not um, suggest to anyone, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and so I remember very clearly there's a, there was a movie, and it's actually a really pretty good movie. It's kind of on the same line as the Ten Commandments. It's that style of Bible movie. And it was... Uh, on the book of Revelation, John receiving the Revelation. And I remember vividly the depiction of the fourth chapter of Revelation. And I remember when they got to the last verse, the eleventh verse, when the elders say, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive power and glory and might, for by your will all things exist and have their being, or are created and have their being. I just remember weeping. I was like, I hope my mom doesn't wake up, because I don't know why I'm crying right now. But I remember weeping. I don't really know. I don't, I don't know if I realize why I was weeping, but looking back on it, I consider that the sole reason in the fourth chapter of Revelation that the elders are worshiping God is merely because He created. It's merely because of the glory of Himself that He demonstrated in creating. Have, Has that thought ever entered into your mind that if God created the world and did nothing else, He would still be infinitely worthy of worship? 
many of us love the Lord because He sent His Son to die for us and He gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all these things. And we should love God for that. The Bible says that we love God because He first loved us. But why do we love God because He first loved us? Is it because He makes much of us in loving us? Is it because He thinks we are so amazing? Or is it because in loving us, He communicates Himself to us? I think so often we, we stop short of loving God for God. And it really devolves into a sordid idolatry that whenever you don't get what you want, now you're ready to call it quits and, and throw in the towel and apostatize and change your religion or change your denomination. Why? Because your religion was totally about you. and It wasn't about the holiness of God. There's a beautiful God-centeredness of the worship that is in heaven. It's all about God. Everything in, in Revelation 4 is, surround, is everything is measured in reference to God's throne. It's either they're around the throne or above the throne or under the throne or before the throne because God is the center of everything. And it is that centrality of God in your heart in which the regard to God's holiness primarily consists, I believe. Let's proceed to some use to be made of this doctrine. Let's see how much time I got. Hold up. <clears throat> I didn't start my timer. Oh, Lord Jesus. Well, uh, I'll, I'll say we have five to eight minutes. So, <laughs> okay, woo! Glory to God. Okay, so... First, let me open, because I don't feel like looking over there, because it's a lot. So let me find it in my, in my notes. Hold up. Though I do know the first one. The first use to be made is that you must be born again. There is a story that I read, and I can't remember if it was George Whitfield that was doing this, but every sermon he was telling people, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. And there was a woman who, after one sermon, asked, why every Sunday do you come and tell us that we must be born again? He said, because woman, you must be born again. Jesus says in John 3 that unless a man be born again, he shall in no wise see the kingdom of God. Now, often we think of, the, of that verse as he shall not enter the kingdom of God, and that's not what Jesus says. He says, you shall not see the kingdom of God. That is, until God renovates your nature, you don't even have the ability to look at the things of God and see the kingdom of God. You can't look at Jesus and see beauty and splendor apart from the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, apart from God's work, no man can say Jesus is Lord. You must be born again. You must be granted a spiritual sight to delight in the wonder of God. It's a miracle of mercy in the heart of a person to say with the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon that Christ is the fairest of 10,000. And we must not take for granted ever the necessity of this new birth. We must not ever take for granted our dependency on the work of God that John, in order to see God seated on his throne and receiving worship, he had to be caught up in the Spirit. That's powerful. Secondly, 
we must be sure that our religious center is in a strictness of conformity to the image of Christ and not in a height of ecstasy in things that seem spiritual. Um, Once again, Jonathan Edwards and his religious affections, almost the entirety of religious affections is um, Jonathan Edwards, he's saying, well, uh, it's not necessarily that having visions and, and seeing, you know, glorious images of God or, or having impressed upon your mind scriptures that you'd never read before. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is not something gracious. It's not necessarily demonic to have visions, right? But he says it's not primarily what true religious affections consist in. You know, there are, a lot, there are lots of people who make up... Uh, there's a gentleman that I met several years ago who was telling his testimony, and I was very leery of it, and probably just because I'm cynical in general, but I was very leery of his testimony. And we were at Panera, and he was talking about, oh, yes, and I had a dream. And I dreamed that there were just angels, and they just hugged me. And I heard God's voice, and he said, I changed your name. And I was like, okay, but what does God's word say? And, you know, I just kept pressing, okay, what, but what, what do you believe about Jesus? Yeah, but, you know, I heard the Lord say my name, what about Jesus? And a few weeks later, he started coming to church for a few weeks, and, and a few weeks later, he's gone. I talked to Hunter, uh, Hunter, Barefoot Hunter, you people probably know him, because uh, uh, he would give him rides to, to church, and I was like, Where, where's, what's his name? And he was like, well, you know, he texted me and said that, uh, he's been living with his boyfriend, and he's just convicted, and he doesn't want to go to church anymore because, you know, he just wants his life. He just wants to do what he wants to do. Okay, so then I was like, oh, yeah, so all the angels and the, and the hearing God's name and the, your name being changed, hmm, didn't mean much, did it? There are so many people who, you know, I want to see the glory clouds on the ceiling. Okay, that's fine, that's fine, but... The holiness of God consists in the, the, well, rather, the worship of God consists in the holiness of God being transfused into the individual. So that the book of John makes a constant comparison to, since you are born of God, you must live as with a resemblance of God. That's why he says God is love. The one who is born of God loves people. God is, is uh, he's, um, he's light, and in him is no darkness at all. So you, you, if you're born of God, you're the light of the world. You don't sin. That's why he says, he that sins is of the devil. Because he's saying that if you are of God, you bear the traits of God. And if holiness is so intrinsic to the nature of God, holiness should be intrinsic to our nature as born-again people. Which leads to the third point, that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. A lot of people uh, kind of, uh, you know, comfort themselves by thinking that God's a liar, I guess. You know, I, I don't really have to be holy, you know. I can do a little bit and I can, I can wait until later and then I'll be holy later. Okay, well, just remember that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Uh, you know, you think that, well, God's going to be merciful on the last day. And so, you know, I really don't obey Him, and, and I really am 
her provoking him to anger, and I really don't sanctify him in my life. And yeah, I know that he killed Nadab and Abihu for not sanctifying him, and I know that he destroyed Korah, Dathan, and Abihu for not sanctifying him, but meh, God's going to be merciful. Okay, just remember God said, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. Uh, there is a, a way of reading Hebrews, the 12th chapter, where that appears, where people would say, well, well, that's not talking about pursuing a true holiness. It's talking about the imputed righteousness of God. No, it's not. You don't pursue the imputed righteousness of God. He says, strive for the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You're not the exception. I promise you. Lots of people think they are. And they didn't see the Lord. So, there's that. Thirdly, fourthly, I'd like to make an entreaty. Oh, we're still good on time. Praise God. I'd like to make an entreaty for the theocentricity. I'll write, write that on the board. Of worship. I think a lot of times we have... Uh, yes, we have a problem obeying God because the way that American religion has taught us that things work is that God really has our best interest at heart. He has our comfort at heart. He has our, uh, our wealth at heart. He has our well-being at heart. And it's not that God does not have any regard to our well-being. It's just that he has regard to his holiness infinitely more than he has regard to your well-being. So many people love the idea that God is their father. And they struggle so much with the fact that God is king. But let me tell you something. Longer than God has been father by adoption to sinners, and longer than God has been king of the universe, he's been God. And as God, he's been holy for all of eternity. And he is not going to set that aside for one moment because you think you're his child. Not going to happen. Our regard must be that God is the center. It's, where is that? Gospels in our life. That God is the center of our affections, of our life. As the Bible says, that Christ ascended up on high, that he might be all in all, that he might fill all things. Fifthly, it's kind of an overview of this entire summer. Um, we've learned about the attributes of God. We've learned about his ineffability. We've learned about his aseity. We've learned some wonderful new words. And... Uh, James, in the second chapter of his epistle, says, okay, that's great. Uh, the demons believe that. Uh, it's good that you believe that God is one. Good for you. But what are you going to do with all that you've learned this summer? The Bible asks us in 2 Peter 3, knowing that the elements of this world are going to be dissolved, how shall you live in all godliness and holiness and circumspectness? We must remember that Jesus pronounced greater condemnation on men the more knowledge they had of God. 
Jesus says, Woe unto you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, because if the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in dust and ashes. And it's not some sort of plea to God's middle knowledge, don't get me started on that, but it is a communication that God gave such revelation in the person of Jesus that walked down the street, Paul got, uh, that walked down the street of Bethsaida and Chorazin, that, and they rejected it. And he says, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to rise up in judgment and condemn you. And this is really heavy on me because James says, let, let not many of you seek to be teachers because yours is a stricter judgment. So, I mean, it's one, I'm so glad that you've come to Bible study. But just remember, every time you come and you learn, and we should learn, and we should love to learn, and we should love to grow, God is holding us accountable for all the knowledge that He's given us. Third, lastly, in the book of Revelation, the fourth chapter, three times, the Apostle John uses the term, Behold. It says in verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing in heaven. I should have highlighted these. And then it's three other places that I can't see because it's too close and my glasses are too powerful. But the Bible says three times in this passage, just look it over. It says, behold. And that's just, that's just not a filler word. Are you beholding God? Jesus says in uh, John the 6th chapter, the one beholding the Son shall have eternal life. And it should be our constant prayer. This is why Paul in the book of Ephesians says, I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you might know the hope of your calling uh, and the exceeding riches of Christ and all that. And I want us to note that he's not praying that for unbelievers. He's praying that for believers. Because it's so easy to go through our Christian life and for all the cares of the world to cloud our vision of God. And we should strive constantly to be beholding the Son. Let's pray. O Lord, when your hand is lifted up, the wicked do not see, but they shall see. They'll either see in this life or in the world to come. And I pray, O God, that you would grant us that we should see your glory. Moreover, that we should see your glory in the person of Jesus and love it, be ravished by it, be transformed by it. May it not be, God, that jargon of you and theological language is ever on our lips, but our hearts are far from you. Oh God, unite our hearts to fear your name. Oh God, give us one heart. Put the fear of you in our heart so that we should never leave you. Pour water 
on us and make us clean and pour out your Spirit on us. O oh God, grant that we would sanctify you and that you would be our fear and that you would be our dread. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, with whom you and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God, forever and ever. Amen.